welcome back everyone to Between Identities. Before we kick off our podcast, I'm going to start with a Black Lives Matter and land acknowledgement. We want to take a moment to acknowledge that Black Lives Matter with this quote from Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. When we say Black Lives Matter, we are talking about the ways in which Black people are deprived of our basic human rights and dignity. It is an acknowledgement that Black poverty and genocide is state violence. It is an acknowledgement that one million Black people are locked in cages in this country. One half of all of people in prisons or jails is an act of state violence. It is acknowledgement that Black women continue to bear the burden of a relentless assault on our children and our families, and that assault is an act of state violence. Black, queer, and trans folks bearing a unique burden in a heteropatriarchal society that disposes of us like garbage and simultaneously fetishizes us and profits off of us is state violence. Okay, next, um, we are, I am based out of Corvallis, um, which is where Oregon State's located, so I will be doing a Corvallis land acknowledgement. Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon is located within the traditional homelands of the Marys River in Pinafu Band of Kalapuya. Following the Willamette Valley Treaty of 1855, Kalapuya people were forcibly removed to reservations in Western Oregon. Today, living descendants of these people are a part of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon and the Confederated Tribes of the Slits Indians. We encourage you to research whose indigenous people's land you are currently located on and learn more about them. <clears throat> okay, um, so before we introduce our guest, I will let Will um, do a little land acknowledgement for where they are located at now. Um, so Will, whenever you're ready, you can give your land acknowledgement. Hello, I would like to acknowledge that I live and work in the ancestral and unceded traditional territory of the Dena'ina people. The indigenous peoples of this land never surrendered lands or resources to Russia or the United States. I acknowledge this not only in thanks to the indigenous communities who have held relationship with this land for generations, but also in recognition of the historical and ongoing legacy of colonialism. Uh, I'm lucky to be uh, living and working in Dagayakuk in what is currently known as Anchorage, Alaska. Thank you so much. Um, so I'll start off by introducing uh, myself. I am Brianna. I'm one of the student success peer facilitators at Seoul LGBTQ plus multicultural support network. Um, and we're coming back at you with episode five, I believe of uh, Between Identities, QD BIPOC Talks with Soul. Um, today I have with me Will. Um, I will let, um, let them introduce themselves um, before we get started with our conversation today. Uvanga Atikak Will Krusikbin, Kiagdikmu Nasi Luganikmun, Upsen Koya Asilu Segvan Koya, Sabadvaga Native Movement Me Asilu Sapinik. Uh, my name is Will Krusik Bean. Uh, my families are from Okiagvik and Wainwright. Uh, my family is the Opuksons and the Sigavans. And I work for Native Movement as an Anchorage community organizer, and I am Indigiqueer. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I'll give a little bit of context for myself. I am also Indigiqueer. I'm a Nupiaq Alaska Native and my family stems from Shishmaraf, Alaska. Uh, I grew up in Anchorage pretty much my whole life before coming to Oregon State. Um, yeah, and I'm excited to talk to Will today about um, being Alaska Native and being queer. Um, being involved with different um, LGBT organizations and some activism. So I'm looking forward to this conversation just so we can highlight uh, the amazingness of being Indigiqueer. So um, we kind of touched on this with our introductions. Um, I'm from Anchorage, Alaska, which is one of the bigger towns in Anchorage, um, within, within Alaska. So uh, I grew up within the city. Um, so I was exposed to some aspects of different, I, I mean, Anchorage is pretty diverse, which was pretty cool. Um, so I was around different like races and genders and um, sexual orientations 
from a relatively young age. Um, but it wasn't necessarily a pretty big topic of conversation just growing up. Now that I'm older, I can look back and see that um, it should have been a bigger topic of conversation, especially growing up highlighting different diversity um, within the state. Um, so I'm hoping that can kind of shift moving forward with different organizations and groups that are um, starting to rise within Alaska. Uh, yeah, Will, do you want um, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, I was born in Kalgvik, and uh, like Brianna, was raised down here in Anchorage since I was two weeks old. Um, so I'm an urban native. Uh, I'm a Nupak LU at the Baskin and Yupik, um, and I identify as a uh, gay, trans, non-binary person. And yeah, I, I uh, was lucky enough to uh, graduate from Bartlett High School, which is one of the most uh, diverse, culturally diverse high schools in the nations, and I just love it. And, uh, but unfortunately, uh, like Brian has mentioned, there hasn't been uh, too many conversations um, in, the, in the indigenous community about uh, LGBTQ plus, um, representation, history, and uh, support for LGBTQ plus folks in native areas, and then kind of vice versa, um, indigenous support in the larger queer community of Alaska, um, which uh, I've seen uh, change quite a little bit over the past uh, four or five years or so, uh, which is really wonderful to see. And I'm really lucky to uh, be an Anchorage community organizer for Native Movement, uh, where a lot of my work is um, centered around LGBTQ2S plus and indigenous advocacy and houses advocacy. So I get to work in all these amazing areas. Uh, and as an identity board member, I bring a lot of my indigenous identity, not only to the board, but in the youth programming that I uh, volunteer and have worked with for the past several years. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, super cool to hear about your experiences. I'm personally hoping to be able to move back to Alaska at some point in the future and get involved with these organizations that focus on um, different intersecting identities, especially Alaska Native, LGBT, um, Q plus intersecting identities. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the future holds, um, what the future holds for me and for Alaska, because it does sound like organizations like the Native Movement are doing pretty good work to address topics that have otherwise been deemed um, like taboo or just not really talked about within our community. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, I, I have seen uh, more people talking about it. It's been more prevalent over the last few years growing up. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of Alaska Native people. Uh, I don't necessarily know if any of them were LGBT. It wasn't explicitly talked about, especially like in my family. I'm pretty sure I'm one of the only um, queer cousins in both my sides of the family, um, my, my white family and my indigenous family. Uh, so, that that's kind of always been a thing. I think Will might have been one of the first other LGBT Alaska natives I met um, who was more outspoken about it. So it was really cool. I got the I, um, the opportunity to work with them um, when I was kind of coming out of high school and when I was early, when I was still early in my college um, career. So I kind of it was really cool to see that representation and hear about their experiences and the, what kind of work they've been doing because it sounds like they had when I had met Will they had been involved with um, doing some activism and being pretty outspoken about different issues that um, I had kind of only hoped about talking about once I kind of got in that confidence um, but now that I've gotten involved with Soul and I've kind of gotten my first step into doing some social justice work um, and doing a little bit more activism um, I'm hoping I can kind of be a role model to other LGBT Alaska Natives I meet, might meet down the road. Uh, so 
that'll bring me to some of the questions I kind of have outlined for us to talk about today. So, um, okay. So thank you for telling me about um, some of your experiences and what you've been involved in. Um, so we're gonna kind of kick off our conversation by, I'm gonna be asking you, so what does decolonizing gender look to you? Um, to me, it's um, <clears throat> a lot of it's based in uh, really digging into my culture, uh, mainly my new back culture and other Alaska Native cultures. Um, uh, quite a while ago, I think it was my senior year of, of uh, my undergrad that I started to wonder if there were Alaska Native words for terms like two-spirit people. Um, and so starting that journey um, quite a while ago, uh, I was fortunate enough to find uh, a really great Two-Spirit researcher, Harlan Pruden, um, who has some really amazing talks on the subject and the history uh, of our uh, Two-Spirit relatives in our community. And <clears throat> so starting with that, it was, uh, you know, at first it was just kind of really great to see that there were that, that that there were words for people who were like us who were outside of the typical uh, gender binary from that came with uh, Western colonialism. Um, and so for me, it was uh, digging into my culture and then bringing these teachings into my life and the work that I do and trying to uh, practice. Uh, decolonization every day and continuously learning um, new things about the cult about our cultures. Uh, like recently, uh, it was last uh, last fall at Elders and Youth Conference um, that I got to present a St. Lawrence Island story of a, a traditional story about a two-spirit individual. And that was incredibly powerful. When I first read the story, I uh, honestly almost cried because uh, this is something that I had been looking for and although um, <clears throat> it's from another region uh, than where uh, most of my family is from it was amazing to hear because you know if there's if this region has a story then there must be one for the Arctic Slope and for the other areas and so uh, being able to share the things that I learned with uh, the larger community both the queer and our indigenous communities uh, has been really powerful. And um, yeah, just being able to uh, share what I learned with other people to, um, to you know, sort of be, um, you know, kind of send the message to others, uh, to other young indigenous queer folks that, you know, we've been around forever before colonization happened and that we're still here today and uh, wherever they are on their gender or sexuality journey that, you know, there's going to be some support. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I love to hear that. Um, that's super cool because, you know, kind of what I was saying before growing up, I didn't really get that representation of um, Indigenous LGBT two-spirit um, people within Alaska. So it's great to hear stories of you being able to learn about that because like you were saying, when Alaska was colonized, a lot of um, like identities and traditions were wiped out, which is terrible. So um, I'm sure there was a lot more history that has kind of been swept under the rug because of colonization in terms of more, um, more, more intersecting identities, different gender expressions, that's kind of what's been like placed before us. So that's super cool that you've got, you got to experience that um, from my time at school. Um, I, I've seen that even when we don't necessarily want to be, we um, Judy Bach people are some of the best resources because we have those, um, those firsthand experiences that other people like other people who don't share identities that we have, um, that we have that don't other people like physically can't have. So um, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, so it's great to hear that. Yeah, we're just, I, I, I agree with you that part of decolonizing gender 
is making those connections and networking um, and being outspoken about it just because for so long um, they were kind of swept under the rug and we were kind of put into different boxes um, and we were limited in expression. Um, so it makes total sense that um, on top of like different cultural practices, like traditional practices that different gender expressions and like sexualities were um, were limited by colonization when Alaska was first becoming a state. So I'm glad to hear that people are starting to be, um, that, that people are being outspoken and telling their stories because it's really what, um, what people deserve to hear because we mm -hmm. have been like silenced for so long. Um, even in like society and in um, like organizations that are LGBT friendly, they're not always like QD BIPOC friendly. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting to see because on one hand, um, they're not accepting like all of us because people can wrap their head around um, just being like white and LGBT, but um, it's a whole other mm -hmm. thing taking into consideration um, race and culture and the intersectional identities that come along with being LGBT and a person of color. That topic brings me into the next topic I kind of want to touch on. Um, so I want to hear what you have to say about how we should handle um, and address issues when it comes to um, different intersecting identities and the lateral violence on both sides that come from that. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, uh, like I'm sure you know, uh, living at this intersection of identities of being indigenous and being queer is just like really tricky. Um, <clears throat> like when I first came out, um, when I was younger, um, I became really nervous about um, uh, whether you know my my native family would be supportive of me, not only in my immediate family but also my um, uh, my larger extended family. Um, so it was just sort of like uh, this kind of long history of you know just code switching, you know, kind of reading the room and figuring out how much I can share with with people. And in my earlier years, um, it definitely felt like I was either in uh, a really queer space and I was one of the only people of color in the room or I was in a indigenous space and I was one of the only LGBT people in the room. And <clears throat> I was especially nervous about uh, coming out to my biological family um, because I was adopted at birth and so uh, because I really wanted to be able to connect with them and learn more about our family's history and everything. Um, but uh, also coming up presented some new, uh, some new anxieties uh, about uh, trying to start that journey and continuing that journey. Um, and so, uh, you know, just navigating uh, this intersection of identities uh, has just been a lot of code switching. And um, at some point, I just sort of uh, pulled away from both communities a little bit. And, um, but that was primarily so I can uh, work on my own sort of like internalized homophobia and transphobia and, and transphobia and internalized racism to, you know, have a better sense of who I was as a person because I hadn't really considered um, gender and sexuality because back then in in school it wasn't and uh, it wasn't a topic that was talked about in uh, health classes like it is today. Um, so uh, you know we had I had to learn a lot of that just by myself and um, doing a lot of online research and so I found that. Uh, connecting uh, and learning more about the history uh, gave me a lot more confidence to be myself and uh, bringing my full self to be to both of these communities and um, which has been uh, for me primarily supportive uh, and, and, and in that way I'm really grateful and a bit privileged about for the spaces that I work in and live in.
Um, but yeah, definitely I've seen a lot of uh, homophobia and transphobia in our native communities. Um, like there was one time where it was just so incredibly blatant that I was just left shocked and confused like in, and in disbelief that this actually happened um, because it was actually for uh, during um, a good friend of mine's wedding and it was uh, there was an indigenous pastor um, and so this was around the time uh, during the fight to repeal DOMA um, and so for some reason while he was uh, perform performing the ceremony uh, of my friend's marriage that uh, he went into talking about um, kind of the uh, how evil the LGBTQ plus community was and how it's um, how marriage equality shouldn't be passed and stuff. And uh, that was the first time that I really experienced some uh, direct uh, uh, direct kind of violence uh, from the Native community. And so <clears throat> I really wasn't sure how to address that. And then, um, oh, okay. So uh, going back, um, but after that event, uh, I had met um, many elders since then who have been very supportive of me and uh, have uh, even told me some stories about uh, some of the other indigenous and queer people that they knew in their lives and how um, in our traditional values that kinship and community are uh, one of our highest values and respect for others. And so that was incredibly comforting to be able to hear this from an elder because um, it wasn't just uh, because it really kind of showed how deeply rooted colonization is in the native community, um, which of course uh, Christianity played a huge part in. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I definitely have seen how it is interesting to think about um, Alaska Natives in their relationship with uh, religion, because I've seen that too, where a lot of my um, rural Alaskan, more indigenous family, they're all pretty religious. And that's always been interesting to me because um, the way Alaska was colonized um, by Americans, like missionaries would go around um, baptizing or spreading whatever religion they were practicing to these villages while also kind of wiping out um, traditional practices. So it's it's always been mm -hmm. interesting to see the relationship between between natives and religion because um, a lot of the cases Alaska, a lot a lot of my family at least and a lot of Alaska natives I know are super religious and they take a lot of that practices um, pretty seriously. Like I have mm -hmm. I haven't um, I've been lucky enough to not have instances where I've had family members or just indigenous people directly homophobic to my face, like um, like your instance, which sounds terrible. Um, but I've seen um, mostly through Facebook them, um, my indigenous indigenous family and just indigenous connections, talking about um, just how they're like pro pro life um, mm -hmm. or are like um, leaning more conservative with their political views. Um, so that's always been an interesting topic, topic of conversation because that's kind of what, when I was growing up, put like a negative stigma around me coming out within the, um, within native communities, um, just because for me, I always kind of saw my, my native family as like more religious and more practicing um, like, quote unquote like tr like traditional like traditional I guess marriage and what on all that kind of stuff just because I didn't like I was seeing them be actively religious while not seeing any representation um but I have kind of seen a shift where like my mom for instance she's pretty liberal and she's pretty open about LGBT identities my dad's similar um so I'm I'm hopeful like moving forward, like you met some really great elders who were supportive 
Um, so I've, I've started to see some of more like liberal natives being outspoken and pro, um, like just being more outspoken about intersectional mm -hmm. identities and their support about it. Um, but I definitely have seen that and I um, understand where you're talking about when it comes to homophobia mm -hmm. and transphobia within the Alaska Native community. Um, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, to, to, to touch on another point you had kind of brought up before, um, just being, yeah, too, too gay in Native spaces and then being too Native in LGBT spaces. Um, I've seen that a lot, even with my position now. Um, uh, Soul is an initiative of the Pride Center. Um, and I think it's not meant to kind of divide us, um, but it, it kind of comes off that way, especially if um, mm -hmm. like the Pride, the Pride Center staff predominant, um, predominantly a white staff, and then all the people of color who are LGBT are on the full staff. Like, I understand why mm -hmm. it is the way it is, but it kind of puts, like, like me in an awkward position, and then puts, like, the other people of color mm -hmm. in LGBT spaces in a weird position, like, um, like, I know you've had personally as well. So, um, it's a difficult issue to face, just because, um, it's pretty deep rooted in just like how systems are set up now. Like like institutions think they like they've set up an LGBT space that's good enough, mm -hmm. even though like there's so many layers of intersectional identities that just having like one designated LGBT space isn't enough when it comes to different mm -hmm. like different intersecting identities. But um, it's difficult because you kind of have to be the one who's having these difficult conversations. You don't always mm -hmm. want to be the one who's writing the blueprint for how things should be set up, but that's the case mm -hmm. because a lot of the times we're the first ones who are bringing up these issues, even though we're not the yeah. ones for like the first people who've experienced these issues. We're just, we're, we're, we have to be the ones who are like setting these boundaries and having these difficult mm -hmm. conversations. So it's, it's yeah, tricky, certainly. but yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, and I really like how you kind of brought up uh, the issue of uh, uh, Native peoples who, you know, kind of tout this uh, traditional values as an argument against um, some of the uh, equality laws that LGBT, the, the larger queer community is trying to pass because, you know, as Indigenous people, it's you know, when they say traditional values, it's typically American traditional values, which both have, have only recently been a part of our history. You know, our peoples have been here since time immemorial and we have our own traditional values already set up. And, you know, it kind of creates this um, kind of cognitive dissonance between, you know, the two identities that, uh, you know, other people hold of being or that we that we hold as being native and but also being American, you know, and I find that kind of funny um, because it's it's only been recently um, that these that these traditional values that some uphold are have been a part of our lives and our history, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I really liked uh, what you said about, um, you know, being uh, kind of the the responsibility to make changes uh, within these communities that we hold, um, which is kind of interesting because it's placing um, sort of not only that actual labor, but also that emotional labor, you know, of being out and proud indigenous queer people, it's placing the responsibility on us, but not only us, but other QT BIPOC folks in our communities. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the, the larger queer community has predomin predominantly been white centered. Um, and uh, it's really, uh, especially within the past year, um, like it's great that some some of the queer organizations and groups are working towards 
uh, racial equity and trying to make changes, you know, but it's also a little tricky, you know, because you don't want it to be, or, you know, we hope it's not uh, the sort of performative allyship or uh, tokenism that happens with our QT BIPOC uh, relatives in our communities, uh, because, you know, that uh, labor and emotional labor shouldn't be the sole responsibility of our QT BIPOC people to make these changes. Um, it should be, you know, some of our uh, white and queer allies who are speaking up um, as well, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love that you brought up, yeah, performative allyship, just because I've seen that a lot within a predominantly white institution like Oregon State that I'm at, because um, obviously Oregon is very white, um, and this is a pretty big state school, so it's going to be very white. Um, so it's great that we have cultural centers like the Pride Center in Seoul, but on one hand, like on the other hand, um, we're not necessarily getting the support from Oregon State, like kind of what we've touched on before, like they, people mm -hmm. like in organizations think that just because they have established these cultural centers, that's enough. Um, so they think they're doing a really good job and they promote, they promote the hell out of like the diversity and inclusion um, that is represented at Oregon State. But apart from us, them just kind of giving us a platform, they're not actively seeking to support us in ways in which we do deserve. Um, so mm -hmm. to me, I perceived a lot of what Oregon State does as performative um, allyship because it's really like the students and the faculty um, who are having to go the extra mile and are put, getting mm -hmm. put through like emotional, more emotional stress than what we kind of already have in order to be creating mm -hmm. these spaces. Um, so yeah, I, I love that you put, you talked about the performative justice just because that is really prominent. Um, mm -hmm. Just not, not even with at Oregon State, just, just within America in general, especially like corporate America, mm -hmm. they think like, having a pride collection um, like once a year makes them really woke. Um, mm -hmm. But but we know it's mostly just in terms of trying to reach different audiences to make revenue and just coming off as mm -hmm. um, really good. Um, yeah, definitely. Okay. And it's, um, it's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, these major corporations that suddenly come out with all this pride gear through June for Pride Month and then sort of, you know, that's the one thing they do a year without, you know, looking at their internal policies and structure and how that's uh, perpetuating unintended violence uh, towards our community members. And <clears throat> sort of uh, within the uh, within the larger community, you know, it's it takes it's a lot of work to, you know, look at uh, look at what systems are in place that are perpetuating this colonial, colonial structure that upholds white supremacy. And, <clears throat> you know, whenever I'm approached by a group or organization to help with uh, dismantling that, it's like, uh, it's kind of like this question that I have in my head. It's sort of like, yeah, it's, uh, it's really great that you want to make this change, but are you, you know, are you really gonna, you know, do all this work to dismantle mm -hmm. this because it takes, um, you know, it can't just be uh, one meeting or like one decolonization training. It's a continued, um, continued effort and it takes a continued work to dismantle those systems. Yeah. We've, we've talked a lot about like continuity, continuity a lot, like how it's never just a one-time thing, like things are always going to be growing and adapting. So like you were saying, things can't just be like a one, a one like workshop and you're suddenly like all diversity and Mm -hmm. equity and inclusive trained like it's not just a one-step thing 
and a lot of um, like organizations and businesses like think it's just the one like they think just because they have one training like it's enough even though like accountability and like mm -hmm. just education is so continuous because things are always going to be changing and things are always going to be happening um, mm -hmm. especially with intersecting like unity like identities and stuff there's always going to be something happening to lgbt rights mm -hmm. um there's always going to be things threatening indigenous people um in like the lands in which we're on so it can't just be like a one workshop thing things are always mm -hmm. going to be threatening us um so that's all yeah definitely it'll just be continuous yeah yeah it's like you can't just you know slap on a land acknowledgement to your email or use it during meetings and say, okay, we're diverse and uh, we care about equity and equality in our spaces. You know, you have to, um, you know, really examine what your group or organization is doing and um, actually do more than that, do the work uh, to really, um, to really give that land acknowledgement some substance, you know? Yeah, totally. Sounds like the Native movement um, is really great in terms of um, just having these difficult conversations like we've been discussing throughout the duration of the podcast beforehand. Um, I know you're part of a couple of different initiatives on top of the Native movement. Do you want to um, talk about those and explain those at all, Will? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so one thing um, that I uh, that I work on uh, with Native Movement in partnership with the Alaska Humanities Forum is uh, a Kenley conversation called Continuous Conversations. And so these Kenley conversations are meant for community members to get together and discuss at length um, an issue that our community faces. And uh, so continuous, uh, it's based off of a portrait series by my good friend, Jenny Irene Miller. And uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a portrait series of uh, indigenous queer folks that are living in Alaska, um, along with some, with some of their stories of living at this intersection of identities. And so out of that uh, came these community, this, this uh, continuous conversation toolkit that builds upon that and asks, um, the point of the conversation is to discuss how culture shapes our understanding of gender. And so I've been uh, hosting these conversations um, for oh, about two years now. And it's always an amazing time to be able to connect with people and uh, not only share my story, but other stories of other indigenous queer people in our community and uh, learn from others uh, in, in my community. Um, and so that's been uh, one of my favorite ongoing projects uh, with work. Another one is uh, I've been working with the regional director of the Pacific Northwest um, from GSA Network on their uh, Two-Spirit Initiative. Um, which brought, uh, which uh, Liz Moreno, who's the regional director of the Pacific Northwest in Hawaii, um, brought together uh, Two-Spirit and Indigiqueer uh, organizers and activists across the country to uh, work on issues that are facing our Two-Spirit and Indigiqueer youth. Um, and so <clears throat> a part of that is gonna be education and gathering resources um, and I'm a part of the youth committee that will focus uh, directly on uh, providing those education and resources to our Two-Spirit and Indigiqueer youth. Um, and so uh, we just had our first uh, Two-Spirit retreat this last uh, March, and it was just incredible being in the space of just uh, other Indigiqueer folks across the country and because I'm in Alaska and some of them are from the East Coast, it was uh, in the morning. And so starting my mornings uh, with, these, with these wonderful people was just the best, you know, because mm -hmm. I could bring my full self into the space. I didn't have to worry about, um, you know, about uh, code switching at all. And uh, it was just beautiful learning from these other organizers and activists across the country 
And uh, so that's one of the ongoing projects that I'm working on. And <clears throat> I was uh, recently, I've recently started working with um, another wonderful uh, Two-Spirit organizer, Gary Newman. And so <clears throat> I was able to help develop a, an issue uh, for this Two-Spirit newsletter that goes out every month. And so for the month of May, uh, I focused on Alaska. And so with that, I was able to write a piece about uh, Jenny Irene Miller, um, what she's done in the past, like continuous and uh, what she's up to now and what some of her future projects look like, as well as uh, a resolution that was presented to Elders and Youth Conference last year that uh, sought to make the gay panic defense illegal in the state of Alaska uh, that was introduced by Oliver Tyrell. Uh, and it was really wonderful to hear from this young person um, about this resolution and uh, learning more about the gay panic defense. Um, <clears throat> and uh, another one is I'm working with some youth uh, here in Alaska. Uh, some QT BIPOC youth and in developing a, a couple trainings. Uh, so one of them is addressing lateral violence in our communities, um, which I'm very excited for to work, uh, to, to work on. Um, I've got together a youth advisory committee uh, to help develop those because I really wanted to uplift some uh, young, young people's voices uh, in this space and to develop this training in cooperation with. And in addition to that, we are going to develop another training on, uh, I think it's uh, action and healing is our tentative title. And that's all about how we can bring healing and health and wellness into uh, the, the direct actions that we do. Because as we've seen the past year, there's been uh, this massive uptick in direct actions, which is wonderful, you know, being able to fight for what we value and what we believe in is really great, but it's also mm -hmm. incre incredibly important to think of the health and wellness of not only our organizers, but the people that we're, you know, coordinating these direct actions with. And so it's all about um, keeping health and wellness in mind during these actions. Yeah, that's 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 amazing to hear about. Yeah, um, that conference you mentioned earlier that sounds if that sounded that sounded beautiful. It's like it would be the dream to to be in spaces where you never have to code switch. So yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so that that's yeah. that's the dream because I've I've seen that too. I know we've talked about that. Just kind of having to read the room and knowing like having to gauge what people like how much of your identity people are comfortable with so um i think mm -hmm. it's amazing that you are um helping out the lgbt indigenous youth um when they are younger because um i think it's important for yeah kids to to see that you you shouldn't have to hide all like any aspects of your identity in order to fit in so it's great that there's um, these spaces that I, they could have probably, maybe they were around when I was younger. Um, if they were, I didn't hear about them. So it's amazing that um, you're giving the opportunity to, um, to younger LGBT indigenous youth, just to, just, to, just to show them that there is community and like spaces mm -hmm. for, for them and their whole identity. Um, so that's, that's amazing to hear um, just because growing up, I think that would have been beneficial for me. I'm sure it'd be beneficial for like any LGBT Alaska natives um, just because mm -hmm. of the narratives we grew up listening to. Uh, so that's super great. It's really impressive. You are quite the role model. Um, so that's, that's just amazing. Uh -huh. Thank you. Like what have been, you think, some of the main struggles for like you've seen within the youth communities and what they've needed like the most help with? Um, <clears throat> I think I would say the biggest issue that I hear from some of our youth 
um, in both indigenous spaces and our, the queer spaces is that um, they need help addressing lateral violence uh, in our communities, um, which is, uh, you know, very tricky, especially when you live at, a, at, at an intersection of identities. Um, and so, which is one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to develop this training is um, <clears throat> addressing lateral violence in our communities is because uh, I recognize that as an issue myself uh, a while ago. But you, you that kind of cut still... out. Oh, okay, I can hear um, you again. Yeah, so uh, that was one of the things that I. Uh, noticed uh, growing up uh, as an indigenous queer person was all the lateral violence that was going on and hearing that it's still happening in our communities uh, was uh, really unfortunate to hear because you know from the outside both communities have have seemed to make uh, some progress um, but you know it's, it's those kind of finer details of lateral violence that are uh, difficult to um, Kind of reconciliate and bring up and discuss, you know, like microaggressions um, and different ways that uh, unintended violence is perpetuated within these communities. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, microaggressions and whatnot, and like being proud to own up to that your like all aspects of the identity. So um, I can see like mm -hmm. that lateral, like that, those microaggressions and the violence in that aspect um, and just like being in like kind of an environment where it's encouraged to be more, um, to be, to act white is, it's, so it's, in, yeah. So like you were saying, it's important to like, to want to face these. Um, so, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of how I want to say this. But yeah, it's important to have these spaces just to break down those colonized views of identity and how mm -hmm. how people should act and how people should quote unquote act white and that's the only way that people will come off like smart or mm -hmm. cool. Um so yeah, it's it's so I think getting those messages across to the youth early are important, especially because types of microaggressions and violence like that are still happening now and probably mm -hmm. will be happening until, happening for a while, unfortunately, but um, I'm glad that there's spaces now that are that are demonstrating that you don't have to act white to be cool um, because that's the narrative that's kind of been pushed on us for, for so long now. Okay. Um, to wrap it up, um, we're getting near the end of our time here. So I'm just gonna um, leave you all with some closing thoughts by asking Will, uh, what has decolonizing looked like to you? And um, yeah, just what do you wanna see for the future? What's your ideal, um, like what's your hope for the future when it comes to accepting intersectional identities and being decolonized? Um, yeah, so to me, uh, decolonization is a journey. It's like a, a constant state of learning and uh, actively dismantling these uh, systems um, that up uphold colonial, settler colonial attitudes and perspectives and white supremacy. Um, you know, it can be really difficult uh, when you start a decolonization journey to not take things uh, personally, uh, especially if you're learning decolonization from, uh, from QT BIPOC folks, um, but to remember that it's an ongoing journey. You know, you're gonna stumble, you're gonna, um, you're gonna just wanna flat out cry sometimes, but that's perfectly okay. And uh, to remember to uh, take a deep breath when it gets difficult, give yourself some space, um, and uh, remembering that it's okay to take a break and come back when you feel ready. Um, <clears throat> and I hope that uh, or, uh, groups and organizations um, will not only 
uh, will move past this, uh, will hopefully avoid or either move past this performative allyship and actively work to decolonize their spaces, to really take a deep look at not only yourselves individually, about how you're personally uh, perpetuating white supremacy culture through colonialism, but also how your workplace, uh, your community groups uh, are also perpetuating it. And thank you so much for having me, Brianna. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Those are beautiful closing words. Um, and thank you to everyone who is joining um, Soul and our Between Identities podcast for this fifth episode. Um, I'm just gonna close it out by echoing what Will said. Um, it's a journey, it can be overwhelming and I, I am proud of you for getting through it. Um, and I know you can continue to get through it. And um, there are great organizations that are here to help um, you through whatever journey or whatever um, you're going through right now. So proud of all the listeners. Can't thank Will again enough for joining us here today. Um, I'll kind of close it out also by, uh, if you are interested in um, following Soul uh, in any um, in our platforms, I'll read them out right now. Uh, our Instagram is at soul, S-O-L underscore Q-T-P-O-C underscore O-S-U. Um, our Facebook is S-O-L Oregon State. You can just look that up in the search and it should pop up. Um, and then our Twitter is at S-O-L underscore O-S-U underscore Q-T-P-O-C. Um, so Get involved with us if you want to. We put on events. Um, we occasionally host podcast episodes such as this one. Um, and it's just a space to yeah, be in community. So um, look out for us if you are interested in. Um, yeah, and thank you again to Will. Um, hopefully I will see all of you who may be listening again soon. Yes, quite enough, but 